Thank you for listening to the Missio Day Uptown Podcast. We are a church committed to our neighborhood, seeking to love and serve our beautifully unique community as we join God as he makes all things new. To learn more about us, visit mduptown.com. So we're doing a series on being unstuck. And it would be easy to see it kind of as a self-help series. We hope it's a spiritual formation series, one that forms you into the image of Jesus. And um, we've, as I've said every other week, many of us have gone through a lot this last year. We've had um, loss of people in our lives that have been taken from us. We've had fear or worry about jobs and health and finances. Uh, A lot of it's just anxiety around uh, what could be, right? A lot of us have been in isolation and we've been away from people and so addictions and, and, and uh, temptations that maybe had been there in the past are presenting themselves once again in our lives. And so we are hoping that the Holy Spirit in this time starts to reveal how we can get unstuck, how we can step out of the fog that was this last year and into the light. And much of what we talked about so far has been uh, internal. It's about been stepping into the healing arms of the Father, listening to the voice of the Spirit that reveals Jesus' burden, which is light. So much has been about us internally. And today, I want to talk about some of the external forces of this past year and our response as Christians that I think actually can help us uh, get unstuck. Think about our last year, and there has been a heightened uh, tension in, in race relations, has there not? I mean, it's been intense. And I think what I, we, most of us that, that know our history know that our church is filled with a racist past. Um, this is not something that's new. This is not something that just happened. All of a sudden, our country in the last year has become more racist. But no, it's, it's been this undercurrent. It's been something that's been happening uh, under the surface, and people have been emboldened in their racism. People have been emboldened to fight against racism, and so there's been this clash. And I think there's greater racial tension that we've experienced, and that is heavy. Uh, certainly, it's extremely heavy for someone that's a, a person of color. Um, it's, it's heavy for anybody that, that wants people to have equality and wants people to live freely. We've also been going through a global pandemic, right? And there's been all sorts of opinions about how you're supposed to deal with that. And maybe we've been disappointed with the way that our family members or friends have uh, approached that topic of, of wearing a mask or trying to protect other people by staying inside. And, and, and it seems like that situation has divided our country even more. It's like there's been this, these, these polar opposites of some people say, believe in science. Some people say, we want to hold on to our liberty even now, there's a significant divide over the vaccine. There's, a, I mean, uh, there's no question this pandemic has politicized. And, I, and though I have an opinion on, on who I think has handled this better, in my own mind, both sides have used it for their own political gain and for their own power. There are ideological divides all across our country. Economically, how to deal with poverty, or about human rights, about policing, about sexuality, about climate change, about race. The list goes on and on and on. 
And those ideological differences turn into political differences, right? And so we have all sorts of issues that have come up because of just trying to vote for a president. And so all those issues are important and we need to think about them the way Jesus would want us to. We need to determine how God would want us to to think about voting, what to support, what matters most. Um, how, How do we determine how we're supposed to live our lives in light of this? But today I don't want to talk so much about the right theological perspective on those issues, though important. I want us to think about how do we posture ourselves as Christians in a nation that is stuck. You know what's interesting is that sometimes hate drives us more than like goodness drives us. Like we've had, this, this year was incredible voting numbers. And I think that it was less about the candidates that we were voting for and more about how much we despised the other side. It drove the voting booth. It's like, I don't like this other person so much that I'm going to go and do this. Hate drives us. And yet Jesus calls us to love our enemies. And so today's sermon is called From Hate to Healing. Because I think what Jesus is saying is to love our enemies means to be like a healing force in the world. And I'm, I'm wary of the word reconciliation because I think sometimes reconciliation is this idea that you're going back to a place where the relationship was good. And in certain situations and certain uh, problems in our society, there is no going back to some place that was good. It's always been bad, right? So the term healing, I think, is actually better. But how do I become a healer? I think... How do I become a peacemaker? Jesus talks about if you are a peacemaker, that you, um, that you are a child of God. That's what he talks about in the, earlier in the, the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the peacemakers. It's a true marker of whether or not you're a Christian. How do we become healers? How do we become peacemakers? Well, I think there's two things that it's not. The first is, and these are two things that I think I personally uh, naturally like, like peace but these are the ways in which I promote peace typically in my own life. The first is to avoid. Peace through avoidance is not peace. Healing through avoiding a topic is not true healing. It's so easy to sweep it under the rug. Maybe not for everybody. Some, people, some of you are more combative than I am, and you're like, no, it's not easy to sweep it under the rug at all. But for some people in the room, it is. It's easier to just say, forget it. I don't want to deal with it. I'm going to let this go. But that's really just cowardice, isn't it? It's not peacemaking. That's cowardice. The second is it's not appeasing. I think what happens sometimes is you, there's, a, there's a response to um, peacemaking in our world is just, well, whatever you say is okay. Or we have a confrontation and I'll, be, I'll admit that I'm wrong and we can just move on. There's peace at kind of like we're always giving in or peace at any price, healing at any price. But when we read the Gospels, we see that Jesus doesn't run from legitimate conflict. He has a lot of conflict, actually, in the Gospels. A lot of disagreement, even with his own disciples, even with the people that were following him, not just people that were disagreeing with him. So how do we do this? Why is it so hard? Why is healing conflict so difficult? Why is it so hard to love our enemies? I think it is because we love revenge. (laughs) Isn't it? I mean, my favorite movies are the ones where 
there's revenge. Like Braveheart. You know, the first time I watched that, I was just like, yeah, this is it, right? William Wallace going and killing all these people that had killed his wife. I mean, that was the greatest movie ever as like a 16-year-old, right? Because the Shawshank Redemption, right? This guy that gets falsely accused and digs his way out of prison and ultimately gets the warden who had mistreated him all this time to, you know, he commits suicide, but even he was going to go to prison, right, and be in trouble for all of his actions. The Count of Monte Cristo. Has anyone seen that movie? That's a little bit less popular. Oh my gosh, I love that movie. Everything's stripped from this guy, and years and years and years later, he finds a way to free and then turn the tables on his enemy. There's something that feels so good about revenge. Now, sometimes you could say that this is justice, and I would agree with you that justice is good, but there's a fine line, isn't there, sometimes between hate and revenge that feels so good and justice that's righteousness. But for most of us, if we think about it, an eye for an eye feels reasonable. It feels so good, even if it's not at the scale of these movies that I just talked about, but it's so nice when someone you can just point out that someone else was wrong, right? Or they're contradicting themselves, or they're a hypocrite. It's so great to watch someone get what they deserve. Now, I'm, I'm, again, this can be attributed to major things like war or, uh, you know, someone being imprisoned. But I think we have to begin to think deeply about these issues as Christians because here we have the Messiah of the world declaring to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute him. What does it look like to hold people accountable, to seek justice, and still love people? I think about how much, just in little things, we want revenge. And I'm going to be Real honest, if you, and I am guessing that there are some people that agree with me in the room, okay? This past year, when people didn't take COVID-19 very seriously, like they just kind of like did whatever they wanted to do, wasn't there a part of you, now be honest, that you hoped that they would get COVID, not die, <laughs> not even go into the hospital, not have long-lasting health problems. I, you don't wish, I'm not saying anybody was wishing for those, but there was a part of you that just hoped that maybe they'd get it bad enough that they would reconsider their position. That they would face some discomfort for the fact that they had carelessly allowed other people to suffer when maybe they didn't need to. I know I did. It, what, what is in us that wants that so desperately? that desires and, and wants other people um, to suffer for the way that they've made other people suffer. The problem is, I think, is that hate and vengeance doesn't actually work. In the end, it doesn't actually work. I was reading a couple different sermons, one by Miroslav Volf, who's a famous philosopher. Uh, he teaches at Yale, and he writes a lot about peace. He writes a lot about, um, he, he writes a book called Exclusion and Embrace, and this idea of what it really means to forgive. And I was reading another uh, sermon by Martin MLK, Martin Luther King Jr., and so this next portion is kind of there, like me summarizing what they had to say. 
The first thing that they had to say is that, that hate and revenge never ultimately suffices. Because what it does is that hate just creates a cycle of hate. Revenge creates a, a cycle of revenge. It intensifies hate and evil in the world. If, I hit, if you hit me and I hit you back, we'll just continue to go on and on and on and on. Sometimes for generations, for people. In order for anything to change, someone must cut off the chain of hate and the chain of evil. It only intensifies until someone injects redemptive love. If we go in these cycles, like always happens, we see this uh, in the battles that even our country has, has uh, gone into over the last, the wars that we've embraced over the last 30, 40 years. You can just look even in those years about how what happened in the 90s impacts what happens in the 2000s, what happens in the 2000s will ha- impact how it happens in the, the 2020s. Because what happens is people, when, when war happens, innocent people are hurt, Right? people that had nothing to do with it that creates a a hate for them or their parents were killed and then it comes back and it just goes on and on and on and on. It never changes. It's a cycle. And the only way to stop it, again, is if someone gives up, like they're not powerful enough to fight back or the enemy is totally destroyed. But usually even that is temporary. There'll be generations later they come again and try to appease whatever wrong they've been facing. And if those two things aren't enough, there's two other reasons. I think that hate actually distorts the personality of the hater. It impacts us when we hate, when we despise, when we seek revenge. It affects us. You can't see straight. Your vision is distorted. This week... I uh, got my car towed, uh, and I didn't think I should have got my car towed. I didn't park in a spot intentionally that would get my car towed. I did not see any signs. I did not see any uh, pictures that would indicate that I shouldn't park there. So here I am parked. I come back a half an hour later, and I think my car is either stolen or towed. And I'm like, it can't be towed because I know I didn't park in the wrong spot, so this car must have been stolen, Right? course, I walk around the block thinking I, maybe I just forgot where I parked. That, could, that was possible. Anyways, I finally figure out that it is towed, and I am furious. I'm so angry. And I go down, you know, you have to go to like lower whacker. Has anyone ever got their tow? Oh my gosh, it's a nightmare. And you're in line, and there are like 20 people in line, and by the time I walk into this place, I am furious. And I couldn't, I, it, like, I was so angry and so mad and so filled with hate for whoever towed my car that I, I honestly couldn't even think straight. I was like, just like, I'm like, this is going to cost me hundreds of dollars. This, is, this took up hours of my time. And I went up to the counter, and this lady that's just doing her job, and I let her have, you know, are there any pictures? Are there any evidence? No. You can go to court. I said, I don't want to go to court. You know, like, is there any, you know, and you just go, and, but I could feel myself that, 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 that the hate distorts your personality, distorts who you are, distorts the way that you think. And that's, that's just like a small situation, but you can imagine a much larger scale when you truly have been wronged beyond a couple hundred dollars, but to actually, when someone has wronged you over and over again, how you can begin to be distorted, how you can not see straight. And I think the last thing is it blocks our happiness. It blocks our joy. 
If your relationships stink, life stinks. You can have all the accomplishments in the world. You can have money. You can have success. You can have power. But if your relationships are off or if you don't have deep friendships around you, if you're out of fellowship with your family, those sorts of things can impact you greatly. So it's not surprising, though, with how hard it is to love your enemies, that many people have said, this is a text for another world. Jesus didn't actually mean what he said here. This is, Jesus, we love him, but he was an impractical idealist. Utopian dreamer, as people have claimed Jesus is because of this Sermon on the Mount and this particular passage about loving enemies. Maybe we just skip to the passages that, that allow us, you know, to, uh, to do the eye for the eye thing or whatever we want. So what, is, what does Jesus mean? Well, how are we supposed to love our enemies? Pray for those who persecute us. Again, MLK, who experienced all kinds of of racism is helpful here. Miroslav Volf, who grew up in a war-torn country where his family was killed by foreign armies, is helpful here. And what they say is there, there really are four principles to loving your neighbor, and they all are helpful and, and kind of fall in line. The first, to love your enemy is to blame your enemy. That may seem like an odd thing, but... When you say you're supposed to love someone, you're not saying that their actions are right. You're not saying that there's no reason that they're your enemy and that you just need to fix something inside of yourself. They're your enemy because they've wronged you in some way, right? Usually, I mean, unless you're just a very hateful person, you just hate random people, right? But most times they're your enemy because they've actually harmed you, they've actually hurt you, they've actually done something to cause you pain and loss. Sometimes we think the idea of loving somebody means that we are agreeing with their actions or we are agreeing with the way that what they have done to us. But Jesus calls evil evil, does he not? An enemy, an enemy. That's why he says, love your enemies because there's actual people that were enemies of Jesus. It's not for you to say that you don't have any enemies. We aren't pretending here. We aren't pretending that nothing existed or nothing happened, but to forgive someone, to actually begin to love somebody, is to say, I know what they have done, and it is their fault. Have you ever just walked up to somebody and, um, and just... Like, uh, yeah, I guess, I guess sometimes we walk up to, you know, like, that, oh, I just forgive you, right? If you just walk to someone randomly, I just forgive you. That doesn't make any sense, right? Forgiveness comes because someone has wronged you. To forgive someone is to blame them, to accuse them of, of something wrong. It's to name the, the, the evil. And this is fundamental to Christianity. There are things that are good and there are things that are evil. When I say evil, that there's something wrong with the way that people have been acting or the way that they've been treating other people. And so I think um, people will sometimes say this, and this is a, a popular phrase, I guess, 
into this day and age, and this is why I'm, I'm trying to make a, 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 I think you're going to understand my point, is sometimes people will say, I, I just love them too much to really call them out on that, right? Or they're going to be offended if I say something. Like, and I just, I want to say to you today, that's, that's not love. Typically when people say that is that you just don't want to disrupt the relationship. You, you love yourself too much to have a confrontation, right? You don't really love the other person. We don't have to pretend that we like everyone's actions and say it's loving. I think that one of the things that I've, I, I've, I've learned in this too is that when, if we really want to be people that bring healing and bring peace is that we need to make the first move. Even if uh, we are the one that's been wronged. You know how like, the phrase time heals all wounds? That's actually not true. <laughs> A lot of times it just deepens it, doesn't it? And I think about the gospel, and Jesus makes the first move, does he not? Healing comes, peacemaking comes when we make the first move. I think sometimes we'll say, well, they wronged me, so they should come to me first. That's actually not probably ever going to happen. So many of you are in these distant relationships with someone that has deeply wronged you. And Jesus might be asking you to make the first move, even though you've been the one that's been wrong. The second thing that we, I think that's a part of this, like blaming them is, is how do we go about doing that? I think there's this, this, this picture in the scriptures of speaking truth in love. Some people will say, well, I, I just tell them like it is. If people don't like it, that's too bad. Well, guess what? If you, if you don't speak the truth in love and you just tell it like it is, they're not going to respond to that. Um, a lot of times speaking the truth in love is just a way of someone saying, I'm just going to be a jerk, <laughs> right? It's kind of like a, a self-righteousness. It's to, it's to kind of blame them without any sort of compassion for them. And that kind of gets to the second point of, of, of um, how do we love our enemies. So the first thing is to blame them. The second thing is to humanize them. We can't... Forgive somebody, we can't create peace with somebody, we can't have healing with somebody unless we see them as image bearers, as someone made in the image of God. That every person, regardless of the background or the things that they have done, matter to the God of the universe. You gotta find that image-bearing part of every single person. We have to believe in our hearts that those people, the people that have wronged us, the people that have hurt us, have actual value and worth. And then we have to move not just to say that they're human, they make mistakes, they're made in the image of God, they have value, but I too am not perfect. Anytime you want to create peace with someone, sometimes you have to start with what's your fault if you want to make any sort of progress. And that's really hard when you know the other person has hurt you way worse than you've hurt them. I think the thing that really helps me in situations where I'm trying to create peace is to really listen to ask them why they did the thing that they've done, why they acted the way that they acted. Because oftentimes there's more than what's on the surface. 
often there's something else driving their actions beyond simple evil. Is there a fear? Is there um, an addiction? Is there a level of unhealth in other areas of the life that have led them to the place where they have hurt you and wronged you? So by listening to them, by humanizing them, by seeing the image of God in them, by beginning with your own failures and your own faults, you begin to be able to the process of healing. Because when we humanize the process in the other person, we begin to recognize the planks in our own eyes, right? The issues in our own lives, the things that we have done to perpetuate hate or to cause um, actions. And usually, not always, but oftentimes, it's a two-way street. Even if one person has done worse than the other, there is some reason that they're frustrated as well. The third way, a third way to uh, part of the process is to love our enemy is to spare them. To spare someone is to forego retribution. Forgiveness is to condemn the deed, but spare the doer. Marcel Wolf writes, when the opportunity presents itself to you for you to defeat your enemy, that is a time when you must, when you must not do it. The person that hates you the most, the person that has gossiped the most, mistreated you the most, spread rumors the most, there is a time when you could defeat them but you must not. So we seek to defeat the systems of evil, but you choose to love the person. And this kind of love is the love that Jesus showed us, is it not? There's lots of different types of love. There's a, a, a family type of love. There's a, a you know, friendship type of love, but there's also an agape type of love. This is the love of God that you love a person not because they're necessarily likable, but you love them because God loves them. You may not like the things that they do, you may not like their personality, but you do love them. Love is understanding this, like having this redemptive goodwill for all people. You don't try to defeat them because you agape love them. And I think that there's something, when we think of sparing somebody, is this we get caught up in trying to, to fix everything. I think we need to focus on reestablishing relationships, not on resolution. What I mean by that is resolution means that you come to an agreement on everything. Everything's figured out. Do you know anybody in your life that you agree with on everything? That you're just not going to have any differences with, that you're not going to have problems with at some point? You can marry the best person on the planet, but you're going to have differences. You're going to have differences of opinions. You're going to have things that this, you, know, you don't um, see eye to eye on. And so even your enemies, there's going to be a level where you can restore the relationship, but you don't come to absolutes in every way. But love this sparing of the other person, it has redemptive power to change people's life. This is the power that transforms individuals. If you only hate your enemies, you have no chance for them to be redeemed. If you love them, there is a power of redemption. And sometimes it takes years and sometimes it happens right away. But the power of God is on full display when we forgive, when we spare 
when we forego retribution. The last thing, to love our enemies is to bless them, to pray for them. To love someone else is to seek their best interest, to give up of yourself for their sake, to do unto them what you would want them to do to you. It's self-sacrifice, it's serving, it's generosity, it's kindness, it's patience. I love the, the, the tail end of this passage after it says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Um, Jesus actually says how God does this every single day of our lives. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and unrighteous. And then verse 46 says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? If we don't love our enemies, then we're not really doing anything different, right? Because it's easy to love people that love you. It's easy to care for people that, that show you kindness. What separates a Christian and what makes it Christ-like, what makes it revolutionary love is that you love your enemy, that you love the people that for every other reason you should absolutely hate and seek retribution against. That's what it means to have mercy. That's what it means to show grace. That's what this agape love is. That's the love that Jesus showed us on the cross. I think of Jesus and, I, and it's just... It's, he's, it's, it's incredible. In his own discipleship group, he had people with very different ideas. He had a zealot and a tax collector, right? People in polar opposites. Jesus eats with um, a thief, right? Zacchaeus, who had stolen from all of his people, who had betrayed uh, Israel, had stolen from his neighbors and friends. Jesus washes the feet of Judas, who would betray him, and they would never be reconciled. Think about that. Jesus knew that Judas would betray him and he still washed his feet. Jesus heals the man's ear who's going to arrest him and crucify him. And he makes the principle how about violence breeds violence. He says, those who live by the sword die by the sword. When they mocked him, he didn't respond. When they challenged him, he told quizzical, sometimes humorous stories that forced them to think differently. When they struck him, he took the pain. And Jesus on the cross, as they are mocking and scorning him, he says, forgive them for they know not what they do. This is how Jesus saves. He loves them and he forgives them. He names the evil. He says what they're doing is wrong, but he spares them. And he blesses them. We recognize that the person of Jesus actually lived out the Sermon on the Mount. That he loved his enemies unto death. Jesus came to us and made the first move that he loves us even while we are still sinners. Jesus would rather die than to get revenge on his enemies. This is the picture of what it means to be a Christian. And our world is filled with conflict. And my guess is, is that you personally have lots of conflict in your life. There are people that drive you crazy. Maybe they're just annoying. There are people that have done wrong to you. There are people that have hurt you. Our larger society is filled with conflict, constant conflict, argue, arguments, prejudices, classism, tribalism. 
And I just believe that part of our role as a Christian and part of our life is to become agents of healing. Ambassadors of the good news of Jesus. Whenever, like, we're more divided, everyone says this all the time, we're more divided as a country than we've ever been before. What is the place of the Christian to bring healing, to make the first move? That doesn't mean always compromise. <laughs> it doesn't always mean that you agree with someone else. But what does it mean to love our enemies and to pray for those that persecute us in our time? Some of you may say, this seems like just another task for me to do. But I really believe that action forms us just as much as prayer forms us. I mean, pr prayer is action in some ways. But sometimes we, when we think about our Christian life and, and, and getting unstuck, it's this image of kind of like I'm doing all these things internally. But sometimes external action, making peace with people that have wronged us, can help us break down many of the things that we're stuck in in our lives, the things that hurt us. Because hate and this desire for revenge or frustration with other people is simply no way to live our lives. Let's pray. God, we ask you um, to make us agents of healing. If we just love those who love us, we're no different than anybody else. We become our own echo chambers. We become <laughs> just like the tax collectors, as Jesus would say. But when we, but when we give up of ourselves, when we make the first move, when we don't excuse what people have done wrong to us, it's not that we don't hold people to account, it's not that we don't seek justice, but there's a level for a Christian that can only go so far. And that we see others as valuable, as important, as image bearers, and we're called to bring healing where we can bring healing. And so God, I just believe that there are people in this room even now that have broken relationships, um, challenges within their families, within their friend groups, within their larger community, within you know, the, the, the neighborhood, within like, the, the world that, this, that God, you need to bring peace, peace to, that you need to bring healing to. And so we invite you even now for some people in this, in this space to have the courage to seek healing. Would you do that work in us even now? Amen. Thank you for listening to the Missio Day Uptown Podcast. We are a church committed to our neighborhood, seeking to love and serve our beautifully unique community as we join God as he makes all things new. To learn more about us, visit mduptown.com.